Every organization needs to move away from the traditional salespeople. If we design the processes, we are very data-driven, but then if you're in your actual sales process, that individual sales process, like there is a, lo a lot of um, art that comes together with designs. The relationship seller is not gonna continue existing. Welcome to the Revenue Discussion Podcast. This podcast aims to inspire and educate the newest generation of revenue leaders on various subjects related to sales, marketing, revenue operations, and customer success. Every week, we invite an inspirational guest who is willing to share his or her insights, strategies, and tactics that has worked or are still working for him or her. Today, we've invited Christophe Stan to the show. If you don't know who he is, he's Director Global Go-To-Market and Business Intelligence at Showpad. Showpad, which you might already know, is the sales enablement software pioneer. And in today's episode, we touched on several sales management topics. Um, I'm not going to reveal too much of, uh, of today's episodes, but if you are also curious on how uh, the future of sales management and sales leadership might look like, or better, how they approach it in a growing scale-up uh, such as Showpad, well, in that case, you might like this episode. Let's listen to it. Welcome, Christophe, to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well, Dylan. How are you, doing? How are you today? Well, I'm super excited, uh, super excited because you are on the show and, you know, we, we normally we should have had you as a speaker at the We Are Sales conference, but unfortunately you got sick that day, specifically that day. So, you know, I still have a couple of questions I must ask you because, yeah. Most welcome. I, uh, it was a pity that I could not join some of those interesting conversations. So happy, happy to still answer some of <laughs> Yeah. Exactly. This will be the opportunity to do so. And um and yeah, but before before we go and, and do that, maybe you should uh you know introduce yourself a bit, tell a bit about yourself, where did you start it, what are you doing now at Showpad? And maybe at the same time can you also tell a bit more about uh, about what Showpad does exactly? Yes. So basically, I'm uh, I'm now working at Showpad for almost six years. Um so I I've spent most of my time in this in the sales organization so i i was most recently a regional vice president of sales within the organization up until the first of september uh, where i then changed roles and uh, now i'm responsible for the global go-to-market strategy and business intelligence um like that sounds probably quite cryptic for a lot of people so sounds fancy <laughs> <laughs> well fancy cryptic uh, uh, what, what, whatever you call it like in, in a nutshell, it's on the one side, we have business partners in, in my organization that work with the different sales organization, marketing organization, so the go-to-market organization to understand their strategies and see how we best translate them to processes and the tool set. Hmm. So that is, that is one part of, uh, of the organization. And then secondly, uh, there's the BI team, the business intelligence team, uh, to make sure that we visualize um, all the the data points and um, bring all the insights to the business across the revenue chain. Interesting. I, I, I the previous podcast was all about uh, revenue operations. And so I'm kind of, because I, you know, what's in the name at the end, but do you compare it also to a revenue operations uh, job then? Can you compare it to that? Uh, to re revenue operations, like the, the, Terminology revenue operation has had different names, like exactly. <laughs> split them up into the sales operations, into the marketing operations, into the professional services operations, like per function and per pillar. Um, like we've actively decided within Showpad to combine this into revenue or, um, operations. 
because we want to be the backbone, let's say, the, the internal architecture of mm-hmm. how we have revenue. And that happens across those different pillars. So we also want to have one organization that combines the different pillars. Okay. Yeah. And so the, the, the role that you're in right now, does, that, does revenue operations fall under that? Yes. Or is it still something else? So I am part of um, the revenue operations. So basically everything that is a change in process is what uh, my department is um, um, tasked with. And then we have the, the second part of the organization. So the second part of the revenue operations organization um, is, is more, um, let's say, focused on running the business. So supporting okay. um, the day-to-day business. For example, if you have salespeople with complex deals to be to be managed, um, different quote, difficult quotes, approval process, etc. Like that's running the business uh, or forecasting processes, day-to-day operations. That is the other part of uh, what we also have within the revenue operations business. Okay, okay, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, interesting. Interesting to get uh, the sales structure of a sales tech company. Uh, very interesting. Maybe you should actually also kind of explain what, uh, what Choipet is and does because of course, you're pretty well known in Belgium, but maybe for the audience that doesn't know you yet, can you maybe uh, do the do the short pitch of what is Showpad? Exactly. I think uh, Showpad, maybe brief history, is, is an organization that today exists um, 10 to 12 years, uh, founded in, in Ghent, but today a global organization. And we are active in the sales enablement space. And like that is marketing and sales technology. And ultimately, the goal of the, of the software, the, the platform that we put available to the people is making sure that salespeople are better equipped and better enabled, if you will, to sell successfully. Um, simply, simply put, and the most simple use case there is making sure that a salesperson has the right content at the right point in time for the right conversation versus the, the content struggle a lot of organizations struggle with. To the other use cases where we think about um, training and coaching for salespeople to become better, mm. to the point of using video in your sales process, like all those type of capabilities to enable the individual salesperson and the enablement organization to to do to enable the salespeople more effectively. Okay, okay, yeah, because I've I've seen uh, I mean I've seen posts of you, I've seen the website of Showpad, and every time I see modern selling coming over and over again. And so that's probably kind of the mantra of Showpad. But what does that really entail? What does that mean, modern selling? Yeah, no, exactly. Um, that, 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 that's a good question. Um, also, that terminology of modern selling, like ultimately what we strive for is every organization needs to move away from the traditional salespeople. Um, like we see that from the buying environment as a change, like on the, on the back of COVID to start with, like you look at the external buying environment and the people that you sell to actually change in how they want to work with you. Well, that also puts a requirement on you as an organization to change how you operate because you need to follow the buyer journey, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, so that is what we call about uh, or what we call a modern selling um, is just changing your internal organization to the external reality, which is changing uh, very fast at this point in time. Interesting. You said you need to follow the buyer journey and Obviously, in a way, I agree with that, but I see a lot of debate regarding that because you have a sales process that you put into place and, you know, that sales process is something that you would want to follow, obviously, but there is also that buying journey that indeed deviates and changes with, you know, the new trends that are coming up. And so how do you, do your opinion, how do you still find that right balance between following the sales process or looking what is the buyer journey in this moment and, you know, 
acting according to that. So how do you try to find a balance between that? Yeah, very, very clearly, it starts and ends with the buyer journey. Um, you need to start from the external reality and obviously you need to translate that to your internal sales process. And that needs to happen continuously. Well, continuously, it's not changing from quarter to quarter. Um, but just to give you one example, um, to make it more tangible, like if you think about like, even buying a car, like from a consumer perspective, that's if you don't buy boats, that's probably the second most expensive thing that you buy next to a house. Like if you look at today's reality, there is, I saw some research a few days ago that 44% of people would today buy a car online. Okay. Like if, if that is from a individual consumer, like the second most expensive thing you buy, if you translate that to a professional environment, and by the way, online buying in this case is e-commerce, is not a remote selling. Okay. Like if, if you translate that to maybe a remote selling environment and in the consumer space, banking. If you buy your house, you don't want to sit physically together five times with your banker to discuss your loan. At one point in time, you just interact with him remote because you've had one touch point and then you do the follow-ups on, uh, online. Like that is remote selling, expectations from consumer space. But if you translate that to the professional uh, space, like if you think about the products that you sell to, to the organizations that you sell to, like if you were already the second most expensive thing that they buy, like there is already a significant request on remote engagement. Like if you do not adapt your sales process and you still have a full field force that even um, does through transactions, more simple transactions like renewals of contracts, etc., face to face, if you don't adapt your sales process to stop doing that, like you're just too expensive to work with and not in line with the buyer journey. So for me, that is beyond obvious. It starts with the buyer journey that you just translate um, towards how you should be internally operating. And then obviously you have a strictly defined sales process. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I can imagine that the challenge with that is that indeed you still have to make your processes flexible, agile enough so that you can uh, pivot when time is uh, when time requires it. Yeah, yeah, of course. Um, just just to, to give you an example on on, on Shopper and keeping flexibility in that system, like we give guidances, like we have the sales process on what you want to achieve throughout different steps in the sales process, right? Um, but on the other side, there is an overarching guidance which indicates like we are remote first. Like we will not, for example, if you have an early conversation with a pro potential prospect and that is a not tier A type of prospect, well, we do not want you to go on site. Of course, you need to give some autonomy, flexibility to your salespeople. If there is a specific request and you just feel that the environment is right, you want to allow them obviously to do so. Uh, so that is flexibility built in into the sales process, but by any means, start with the buying journey. Mm -hmm. No, yeah, that's uh, that's definitely a good one. Yeah, and you uh, you touched on uh, on the uh, the idea of remote engagement, remote selling, and there was also a topic uh, at the We Are Sales conference. So here we go. I can immediately ask that first question. But um, yeah, so indeed, when with everything that has happened with COVID and digitalization, that has even started before COVID actually, uh, you see that the role of the sales profession, the sales rep is changing dramatically. And I'm kind of curious in, you know, in your opinion um, on how this will actually evolve. Yeah, uh, it's a very valid question. And I'm, I'm, I'm quite radical in that. And more from a provoking perspective is I, I genuinely believe that the, the relationship seller is not gonna continue existing. And um, 
to my point of like your own desires in the consumer space. I don't want to have fancy dinners anymore with, with people that I need to buy things from. I want to spend the time with the people that I really care about and, and enjoy the added value of the people that I want to buy from. Like that is, that is what's happening to a large extent in, in the, in the B2B environment as well. If I, if I see the decrease in amount of fancy dinners and people who are willing to come to physical events, but rather spend time in a remote event with limited time spent with high value interactions, like that is what we are seeing. Um, of course, there's exceptions to that, of, of course. And it's not black and white, but there is a massive trend towards that perspective. But that has a big implication on the profile of an AE uh, or of an account executive. Because if you, if you loved uh, in the past those, um, those adventures of taking a flight, going to Barcelona because you meet a prospect there, um, and that is the adventure that you're looking for, to then unknowingly what you will end up with in terms of conversation and you go with the flow. Like that is one type of profile of an account executive, which is very different to the person that is successful today, which is the person that really loves doing research before a call to really know who he will be, he or she will be meeting, doing desk research and making sure that you turn on every page and are way more prepared to add value in that specific conversation, be way more structured because you want to outline how you will start adding value in that conversation. But, but those are two very different profiles. And the one used to be largely successful, but is not anymore successful or not necessarily anymore successful today if, if they do not adapt to that. Mm -hmm. So for me, the big implication there is, is what motivates and, and gets salespeople passionate is definitely something to consider in, into your hiring process, resulting out of the reality that we discussed. I want to come back on recruiting the, the right sales profile for, I mean, for the future-proof sales environment, but to go back to uh, the, that remote selling aspect, because I, I like the idea of indeed make sure that every interaction is backed with value-added conversations, but could you not have those conversations as well in person? and make it then, you know, create really that synergical effect because you are then in person, you build relationship and you have those value added conversation. Of course, of course, there is also that part. Um, but there is like, let's, let's talk 80, 20 here. Um, like for me, the 80% is try to be more efficient for your buyer as well. Um, and add more value in the conversation. Like, yes, you can add also the same amount of value if you're face to face, but it's significantly more expensive for you as an individual and as an, um, as an organization to go on, on site, especially if you have an international um, sales organization. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, disregarding the cost of getting there, it's, it's the time spent for an on site meeting. Literally, if you have two on site meetings, you could have six remote meetings. So even if you have an increase in, in, um, in success rate of, of your meetings, like you cannot beat the number six versus the number two. Mm -hmm. But there again, of course, for your most important type of prospects, if you're further down the road in, in for example, also a sales um, process, like you want to overinvest, mm -hmm. but it's not, it's moving away from the, by default, I need to be on site. It's the other way around. Mm -hmm. I feel like you could almost mathematically 
do a comparison of both cases, and I don't know if you also think that way sometimes, but in the sense that indeed, uh, you know, the opportunity cost of meeting only two customers versus six, uh, the time that you put in, you know, going to the customer and go going back, you know, that has and that's an opportunity cost. And you know, if you place that against the other situation, maybe indeed you can make that comparison and see for what clients it could make sense to go there and meet them in person and which one, you know, preferably not. But do you also think sometimes that way or have you already made some some yeah experiments like that in inside Showpad? Yeah, definitely. Um and and again my, my point is not that we should not be going on site, but it's for me you should have a way more data driven approach to this. Um because you, you can have a different outcome if you trust your gut feel versus if you look at the data. For example, if you, if you think about your sales funnel and you have these early conversations, if you need to have a lot of early conversations before you have an actual sales cycle starting, so you have a low conversion point at the top of the funnel, like then it's way too expensive to do those types of meetings, for example, at the customer side or at the prospect side. Mm -hmm. The other side, like if you have, depending on the deal size, a more sizable deal in front of you and your cost of acquisition allows it to spend more on that type of deal, like of course there is that added value and of course there is that element of getting to know by coincidence multiple stakeholders that could be involved in the decision making. So there is a lot of added value. But again, it starts with, if you start with an, a mindset of I need to add value and remote is probably working, and then make the moments that you have that on-site meeting almost a, a premium type of meeting, an exceptional meeting, uh, where you then pull together other people as well. You bring along, for example, another um, executive or stakeholder from your organization. Like you need to almost rally around that special face-to-face -face meeting um, to, to maximize the, the, the impact it has. Mm -hmm. So in, in short, yes, definitely. Uh, we, we, we think very scientifically about that. Um, but there is also the the art uh, and and the science, uh, but the art is then maximizing, let's say that that exceptional um, face to face one. Yeah, and that uh, that brings me actually to uh, to another question that we also asked uh, at the We Are Sales conference. That was to what extent do you rely on data and how much on your gut feeling when making decisions? And that was just in a general sales leadership management position. You know, how much do you rely on data versus trusting your gut feeling? <laughs> Yeah, um, like there, there is a connotation that we are obviously a technology company. We are a young organization, so the amount of data that we gather from our sales process is probably um, bigger than the average organization. So I, I tend to believe that we have very data-driven way at um, or look at how we take decisions in the company. Um, that does not mean that, for example, on a deal-by-deal -deal basis, that you can always use data points to to validate how progress looks like. Um, so I, I think if we design the processes, we are very data driven, but then if you're in your actual sales process, that individual sales process, like there is a, lo a lot of um, art that comes together with the science. Mm -hmm. And are you then someone that says, all right, before taking a decision, you know, I am, I just want to be sure that I have enough of data. Um, you know, it could be, for example, when I'm calculating uh, a conversa conversation, um, a conversion rate, that I'm sure that I have enough uh, data in it for that specific segment, specific vertical, before I can take a conclusion out of it? Or you say, all right, you know, we have here uh, 10 uh, situations, 10 observations. We can already, based on that data, make a gut feeling and go probably that direction. Yeah, 
Yeah, th there's always a balance, right? Um, like you, you don't need tons of data. If, if a small subset of data is in line with your expectation, you just want to move fast. Um, but just to give you an idea on, on using data, if we, if we think about territory planning, like how we basically um, split up our territories across different regions and subregions we have, we literally use data um, on like buy propensity to buy um, based on the different segments that we have, based on past analysis of how successful we've been at different segments. Like we map all the organizations or we buy data to map really in our CRM all the types of companies that we potentially could be selling to. Um, and then we start splitting out territories that every individual account executive has in a data-driven way a similar um, opportunity to be successful based on a customer patch with likelihood to buys and, and deal sizes and also prospect areas. So that is a very data-driven model. But then, of course, we then work with, for example, the first-line managers, second-line second line managers to make sure that we don't only are driven by data, but that we also have the validation check by the business who might mm -hmm. add a layer of business intelligence on top of the data. Yeah, and sometimes speed of decision-making is also very important. You can imagine you don't always want to wait until you have all the possible data points in your possession before you take the decision. Yeah, um, there is this nice um, research of Bain & Company that says like the success of, of scale-up organizations is, is often in the speed of decision-making. So while, again, for, for the more important yearly cycle type of decisions, which are way more strategic in nature, we use a lot of data points. But on the other side, if you need to move quickly and navigate and, and refine decisions, fine, Let, let's often go indeed with gut feel and, and see whether we have data available to support the decision making. Mm -hmm. Definitely, speed of decision making uh, sometimes need to... Um, yeah, that's, a, that's actually a very interesting one. Now, let's go back to... Um, to, to recruiting the right sales profiles for the future-proof sales environment, because you already said that you know they need to move away from the relationship builder to more the the fast-paced, uh, I, I, I should say, well-prepared sales prep that you know add value to each conversation. But so, what does that mean when you have to recruit then the right AE, the right SDR, uh, the right sales rep for for the for the role? Yeah. Um, well, you, you, you actively test for, for those uh, competencies um, in, in, the, in the recruiting process. For example, um, you just provide them with a case. You provide them with a lot of data points or even overload them with data points and see how they cope in, uh, in then, for example, a role play. Um, because it's like if, if, you, if you recruit a lot of salespeople, like it's, it's probably one of the most difficult uh, parts of, of, of any job in, in terms of first-line management, second-line management. But it, a tendency that a lot of salespeople have is they are good at explaining themselves. Like if you don't make it sufficiently hard and test for specific competency, um, they, you can often have a very good or strong impression in, in, a, in a one hour call, in a two hour call, in a three hours of interviews. But you need to really know what is the competency that you're looking for and then really pressure test on that point that you want to see back. All right. Then I have to ask you another question. Do you then higher based on mindset and drive versus recruiting based on experience and competency? Um, I, I would say we hire not necessarily on experience, um, but we do strongly hire on competency. 
And and obviously, like if we're if we're hiring for enterprise salespeople, like we are not uh, we are not hiring marketeers, of course. Like, um, but what what is, for example, uh, the case is like the technology space for uh, account executives. Like, it's 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 kind of a competitive market. Mm-hmm. Whereas, if you think about the competencies to be able to be successful, like the element of having technology in there is not the core driver for success. It's all the transferable skill set of enterprise selling that is more important than that element. Mm-hmm. Like we can use, we do not necessarily then look at the experience of SaaS selling or technology selling, but do want to see all the competencies of, a, of an enterprise AE based on different experiences that they have, might have had. I think uh, I think I know the answer then also on the uh, on the next sales dilemma I will give you because for the for the We Are Sales conference I don't, I don't know if you remember but we had prepared uh, a couple of dilemma and then the audience could actually vote on on you know option A or option B but so one was should you spend more time on performance management or on competency building of your team as a sales leader <laughs> that is not so outspoken um, I, like the answer is both. Because because the depends on the, the type of business that that you're in. But for example, we are in 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 the technology business. Um, we have a fast-paced environment. We have a strong growth orientation. Um, so we want we want quarter by quarter performance and growth. So that is an important part of of, of doing the job. I think more important on choosing uh, which one of mo- both you need to do most is you need to be very conscious that. They are two different things. And for example, like what we do at Showpad is being very mindful of the fact of what type of conversation that you have. If you, for example, have a forecast meeting, a forecast meeting is about how you get to the number at the end of the quarter, at the end of the fiscal year. That is a very performance driven conversation versus having a one to one that can be on a biweekly basis, which is then coaching oriented, which is deal coaching oriented or just general job coaching oriented and competency oriented. So for me, it's it's definitely definitely both because you need performance management to to drive ultimately to the results that you want to have, um, with the predictability that you want to have as a business. But you need to really split them up and be very mindful about there is absolutely two different conversations. Mm-hmm. And w- why I'm saying that in particular is um, if I think back five years for me that that was very vague what the difference was because I was in the, in a forecasting session. And then we had a mix of like coaching on the deal versus then talking about the number. And that was very ambiguous. Like splitting those up is something for me uh, or being very mindful that those are two different things mm-hmm. changes the way that you look at it. I like that. I like that thinking of uh, really splitting those up and, uh, and having those uh, conversation with, uh, with, the, with the right focus. And even uh, to the point that if I was having my forecast meetings myself, like, at times, I, I could, for example, have a one-hour call for which we dedicated the first 20 minutes talking about the probability to get to the number. Like That is a very performance-driven conversation for 20 minutes. Then literally in the agenda, then have, let's talk, for example, about the deals and how we can strengthen the deals, which is then a very deal coaching type of conversation. Like Even in a one-hour conversation, you can make actively that decision to split into um, performance management and um, competency building. That's a super, super good advice, actually. Thanks for that. Now, in um, 
in your post bef um, regarding the, the We Are Sales conference, you, you put something like that. Today's buyer reality requires not just sales individuals, but especially sales organizations to modify approaches, structures, and operating model to step up their game and enable modern selling. And so now I want to I wanna kind of unpack this because I think there are a lot of interesting elements moving away from sales individuals to organizations, but also modify approaches, structures, and operating model. And so, I mean, what, what can you say about that? What, what would you add to that? Wow, I forgot about that sentence. That's a mouthful. <laughs> <laughs> um, but generally makes sense. Ultimately, and that is, that is, there, there it comes back down to, to the sales process. Um, and maybe to add a layer on top of this, like if you look at today's reality, not on the back of COVID, but on the back of um, the, the sentiment about an upcoming depression, re uh, recession, um, the, the cost orientation, more due diligence before uh, buyers buy something. Like as an organization, you need to even be sharper than before on how you spend your money on, on, this, on, on sales. Like what is your total cost of your sales organization versus and the revenue, the realistic and probably adapted uh, revenue expectations because of the external context. So one, one example there is what we do in, in Showpad, and that is to the point of adapting your approaches, your operating model, is how can we be more specific about spending every euro and every dollar on, from a marketing cost, um, from a sales cost. So we, for example, have technology that, um, that gives good visibility, even more in the US than, than, than in Europe, um, into the likelihood that organizations are interested in your, um, in your um, product offering. So we use all those data sets to, for example, have marketing way more focused on where they invest their digital spend. We spend um, way more consciously our local marketing events and focus them around these organizations that we want to win. And then secondly, have a propensity to buy. Hmm. And that is that needs to be integrated into every way of working um, to be able to achieve this. So it's from an organization perspective, you need to translate this reality into your systems because it's your systems and your architecture that then translates to your sales process on how do people go about it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I feel like what you're saying is that it's instead of shooting everywhere and just hoping for the best, it's really working on that 80-20, having that right focus and having all the operating model indeed um, just making that, uh, making that a reality. But it's like the conceptually that is so straightforward. But then if you think about operationalizing that, that is, that is quite hard. Um, for example, one, uh, one big topic that, that is being talked about a lot is account-based everything. Um, but if, if you think about what's happening in reality, imagine you have, for example, an incoming lead into your systems. Somebody is interested in you, into your product offering. Like what often happens in organizations is, well, you translate that lead, you have an, a good BDR play or sales play in terms of follow-up. So also that is an executional area if you describe those sales plays. But that does not link that lead back to how marketing can also accelerate the likelihood to win. Because what you basically want is, for example, translate that lead into where is this lead coming from, which account does it belong to, 
that account as a whole is probably interested. Per consequence, we need to make sure that we activate a broader play on that whole account and make sure marketing is spending money on that account to create more awareness across that account and not specifically on that lead. Mm. Like that is, again, to really double click on one of those operational um, improvements of how you translate something which is intuitively very simple to something that can work at scale. So you need to adapt your systems to mm -hmm. that reality. Yeah, I mean, it's, it it's also sounds a bit, a bit like uh, drinking your own champagne in the case of uh, Showpad, right? I think it's uh, having that sales enablement game at, at a high level. 100%. Like, obviously, we take pride in, in optimizing uh, the way that we um, set up our organization from an operations perspective, but then secondly, as well, enable our salespeople to, uh, um, to execute all the sales plays that we define uh, uh, to the maximum extent. Maybe to uh, to go a little bit more deep on that, and because I'm also kind of interesting in, I mean, interested in, because as you said, it's not that straightforward when it comes to execution. And so, what you know, mistakes of stuff you know that you did in the past in terms of execution of that uh, didn't go as straightforward as you had hoped to, that other people might learn from. Yeah, you learn every day. Um, like today, our our approach is also not perfect. For example, that example that I was just giving on that inbound lead and how we think about account-based approaches or, or maximizing the account level approach. And that is something that two years ago we had already as a kind of conclusion that we wanted to start working more on. Um, reality today is that we are still in that transition phase to completely operationalize that fact. Um, so it's to, to give another example is uh, if we thought about the inbound funnel, like you can have somebody who is actively asking for a, for, a, for a demo versus you can have somebody who's leaving contact details because they've downloaded content. The, those we used to have, that's 2019, um, we, we, that was our inbound funnel. But then we saw that our conversion metrics across those were very different. So we then started, for example, splitting up that inbound funnel into different inbound funnels of high intent and low intent. And then ex also start tracking them differently and also having different sales place um, for example for somebody who really raises a hand and says i'm interested versus somebody who's downloading content or attends an event of yours so it's it's really every time probably the common line in all of those things is we are there we are quite data driven and strict to ourselves to assess like what's working what's not working use the data to back it up and then start changing the uh, the process mm -hmm. um, no, yeah, I think uh, I think it says enough. Uh, I think it's also super interesting to see how big of a scale you should actually think of it. It's not just uh, it's not just you know outbound and maybe they are interested, maybe not. You have that first call and you try to put I mean to push them forward in the pipelines. It's really having a big reality view of how the buyer lives. Almost, uh, I mean, you mm -hmm. have to understand him or her so well. Uh, before you can actually even execute on that on that operating model, and I yeah. think uh, yeah. And one additional one hundred percent, and one additional part there is it also depends on the size of your organization. Um, maybe to your point of learning, what I've seen through Shopper when I was joining Shopper as an organization, we were significantly less than two hundred people. Today we are um, around six hundred. Like in the beginning, if you have 200 people across go-to-market and product and engineering and GNA as a, as a whole organization, 
like this type of sales place, for example. Well, you, you, can, you can talk through a sales play in a team meeting, two team meetings, and then you have the sales play defined and adopted. But if the, the larger that you get and the, the more that you start scaling, like the more important it is that you processize these sales plays, that you describe the sales plays, because if you have new sales leaders joining and new sales individuals joining, like you don't want them, you don't want to teach them everything again, all that knowledge. You need to just provide uh, a script, uh, an example of what the default template looks like, mm-hmm. but then allow them to deviate where they see fit. But that is for me uh, also a key learning uh, in, in a scaling environment. Because again, like everything that I've described for the organization that we were at less than 200 people, that a lot of that would probably be an administrative overload versus the impact that it drives. So that's also how aggressive are you on the documentation, on the, on the sales place definition, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. Totally. hundred percent. Um, maybe a question regarding, because you said, uh, you know, um, creating those sales plays. Eh? You have a first meeting, a second meeting, and then you have the adoption uh, by the team. But I'm kind of curious, actually, indeed, if you want to develop uh, such a sales play, uh, a new process, a new whatever you want to put into the team, what would be your best approach, actually, to, to make that happen? And, and what people are also involved in that, uh, in that process? Yeah, um, def- definitely. There's always a level of uh, include your best performers um, in, in that sales play. Don't create in your ivory tower. Um, but there's a lot of sales plays that, for example, also involve other departments. For example, we have specific, we had this conversation recently about what is the role and responsibility of customer success versus sales in the renewal process. Again, whatever the answer is for, for your organization, you need to have both organizations come together. That is in that case, that's done the, the VP of sales uh, of EMEA, for example, together with the VP of customer success to align the high level roles and responsibilities with regards to renewals. But then you have the, let's say, more operational team to work out the details of what is now the details that we want to describe are the differences, who is leading the, uh, the renewal and who is supporting with which data points and to then describe that in more detail. So I would say the, the, the topic needs to be aligned, uh, let's say at the more executive level, for example, and then the more operational and detailed it gets, involve your best performers mm-hmm. to, do, to not create a process which is fantastic on paper, but will never work in the future. Yeah, that will make sure to fail. <laughs> no. A last element to add there is then pilot it. Um, so for example, we've now described it um, or re refined it and we'll have this um, piloted with, again, some of the, the better salespeople. Um, and then, for example, roll it out uh, broadly to the organization. That's interesting. And when you say pilot, then you mean how, how many salespeople do you try to... Uh, maybe that's too specific as a question. I'm not sure. But... Yeah, it, it, it depends on the, on the urgency of the topic and, uh, and um, um, the size of the project. But, for example, in this case, we will probably have... A handful only, um, let's say mm-hmm. some, per, some people in, uh, in EMEA, some people in the US, so we are globally spread. Uh, if it's a sales play that is across the enterprise business and commercial, we would take some people of those segments and then just, just roll with it. Yeah, and it, it seems to me that, uh, I mean, Chopad has what, I mean, regarding that specifically, uh, has a great culture. And I don't know what's your opinion on having that really innovative culture to be able to be flexible and agile and stuff like that. Uh, but so when you look at uh, the sales culture uh, inside Chopet, 
how would you kind of describe it? Um, I, I think that is one thing that, uh, that I'm really happy with at Showpad. I, I don't think that we have a particular sales culture, um, but we, the values for the people that we hire in general at Showpad are very aligned. Like in terms of um, good nature, we call them good natured ass kickers. <laughs> That's very American. Good natured ass kickers. <laughs> I, I, don't, I don't really like the, the, the expression by itself, but the underlying element is good nature. Like come with your good intentions to the table with transparency. Like that is the starting point of the conversation. But secondly, there is the ass kickers, which is the results orientation. Mm -hmm. um, so, so those two combined is, is what you will typically find back in, in the culture of Showpad as a whole. Um, and given that we are a technology company, a scale-up organization, fast-paced, like everybody that we hire, we require and we hire as well for flexibility. Um, because every six months, this is somehow a, a different company, if you will. Yeah, I can imagine. All right, no, interesting. Now, I mean, I can imagine that also now with uh, with a new job role of you of yours, um, you might also be heavily looking into you know what are the upcoming trends and what will this be of implication for the business. And so, are there any big trends that you are noticing that could have an impact on the revenue organization? Um, for me, it is <laughs> it's it's even double clicking on our cost efficiency. Um, we are in a business where like two years ago, and, and I think Chopin has done a good job in shifting from a growth at all cost to a, yes, we are ambitious and yes, we want to accelerate, but we want also to think about unit economics and efficiency. And like that is right now, uh, if you look at the, the, uh, the drop in stocks of technology companies, like um, we are in a very good position with that regard, but that is where the role of revenue operations even comes in more strongly. Like everything that we've discussed about, like from a how you optimize and structure your organization, it's, it's always difficult to do that as a sales leader. Like the good thing at Chopin is that we have a kind of a mature revenue operations team because they have the job to actively reflect and take the time for this. Um, so for example, on the, the technology base of understanding buyer intent, like that is not something that just automatically comes in. And also there we, we implemented that in the meantime, probably one and a half, two years ago. But still, we have um, a way to go on further optimizing this and, and taking the learnings of the past one and a half years to further refine the approaches to even be more tailored and, and lower your cost of acquisition of new, new customers. I think the core thing for us to focus on is, is continue to drive efficiency throughout the organization, uh, the go-to-market organization to lower our cost of acquisition and be more effective for every, every euro that we spend. Okay. That's probably quite similar to other organizations. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I suppose that, you know, that is a continuous uh, element to keep an eye on, right? Efficiency, uh, efficiency and effectiveness. Yeah, I mean, I can see why. <laughs> exactly. All right, Christophe, thank you so much uh, for being on the show. If uh, people has, you know, any more questions, would love to work for Showpad or, you know, would just like to meet you and have a chat with you, uh, where would you send them to? Honestly, um, if you can provide uh, my email address in, in the show notes or whatsoever, happy, happy to have that. That's christoph.boston at showpad.com. Um, feel free to reach out. Happy to have a chat, um, be, it, be it very informal with a coffee. Um, <laughs> preferably remote for the first time. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> I can see why you say that now. <laughs> now, um, Christophe, I have one last question for you. A uh, question I ask every guest. Um, and so, if Christophe would be a brand, what would it stand for? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's a, that's a good question. If I were a brand, I think ownership. Ownership. Yeah. All right, you'll have to explain. Um, like you, ultimately, um, especially in a, in a in a growth organization like Showpad, you want people who take a topic and make it their own and take it to a next level and take the mm -hmm. ownership to to just as if it were your own topic your own organization to bring it forward um i, I take pride to like accept the topic and deliver on it and take the ownership to deliver on it yeah um, even if it's within the job scope outside of the job scope um let's say do do what you what you tell you would do Yeah, yeah, definitely. No, I like that. I will take that as an answer. <laughs> Again, thank you so much, Christophe, for being on the show and uh, wish you the best of luck, man. It was a pleasure, Dylan. Cheers. Bye-bye. <laughs>